0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, John chapter 21 this morning. And indeed, we want to uh, finish out the book this morning. Chapter, John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25, uh, focus on following Christ is what I've titled the message here. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to come together as your people to uh, hear from you, as it were, as we open your book, your word, and uh, allow the Holy Spirit to uh, teach us, to speak to us. So, Lord, indeed, may we have ears to hear and give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. And uh, we just thank you for the gospel of John, uh, the ultimate uh, love. Message uh, given to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, commit our study to you now, Pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we uh, note uh, the outline of the book of John. We have a prologue, public ministry, private ministry, then the death and resurrection of Christ, and uh, finally, uh, the epilogue, which is where we find ourselves uh, at the conclusion of uh, this morning. The Gospel of John is the Gospel of belief, uh, written for the very purpose of bringing us to faith in Jesus Christ. It really has a two-pronged emphasis uh, in this regard. The book begins by emphasizing Jesus is God, and then builds to a climax showing us that a true saving faith personally accepts Jesus as Lord and God, as illustrated in the New Testament faith of Thomas. And so uh, note... Just by way of review, how the book begins. Very first verse. In the beginning was the Word. That's a title for Jesus. We communicate with words. God communicated himself ultimately to us uh, in the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The communication. Title for Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Very first verse. Built to the climactic illustration in John 20, 28, Thomas answered and said to him, After seeing the risen Lord, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Well, this is then followed up by John's purpose statement, saying why he wrote the book, and shows that we must believe in the same way that Thomas believed in order to be saved. And so... Uh, we uh, note the, the uh, theme is the deity of Christ, as we've already alluded to. But then the purpose statement, uh, as stated by John at the end of the book here, uh, before the epilogue, he says in John 20, uh, 30, 31, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing, you may have life in his name. To have eternal life, we must personally believe in Jesus as Lord God, but we must also believe in him as our personal Savior. Jesus as Savior is the other great emphasis developed in the book. And they go together, who Jesus Christ is as Lord and who Jesus Christ is as Savior. In order to be Savior, he had to be Lord. And so, the book begins, chapter 1, after telling us he's, he's God, come in the flesh, John tells us why he came, really introduced by John the Baptist in John one twenty nine. the next day John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrifice of God, the sacrifice provided by God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, this theme is interwoven through the book, built to a climax in John 19 at the crucifixion, where we read, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He, the Lamb of God, had paid for the sin of the world. It was all accomplished in the cross. As seen in the dying words of Jesus Christ, It is finished. He is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Really, it is finished as an amen to John's announcement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From start to finish, John emphasizes the way that we receive Christ as Lord and Savior is by believing in Him. This is the great emphasis in the book with the word believe being found 98 times in the Gospel of John. Note just a sample emphasis here. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Who is that? Who is it received him? To those who believe, those who believe in his name, that, that's who he is, his name. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then John 6.47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, has everlasting life. And so it goes. We have this theme of believing, believing, all the way through the Gospel of John. Well, we now come to the end. That is the end of the conclusion of the epilogue. After uh, his resurrection, uh, Christ appeared uh, to his disciples as a group on several occasions. Uh, The third occasion is recorded in John chapter 21. And as Jesus met with his disciples on the on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, he proceeded to restore Peter publicly. He simultaneously really humbled Peter and at the same time affirmed him for further ministry. And I think it is those who are humbled who are then in a position for further service. He then told Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And we're not left to wonder what Jesus was really talking about because the very next verse says, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. So Jesus is describing the type of death that Peter would die. And it indicates crucifixion. Early church history affirms that Peter did indeed die by crucifixion, although he refused to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord, uh, requesting instead to be crucified upside down. Well, Peter never forgot what Jesus had said about how he would die. In his last letter, in 2 Peter 1.14, he said, quote, Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So Jesus had made it very clear that Peter was going to die and how he would die. And then he said to Peter, follow me, follow me. And evidently got up and started to walk away with Peter following him. And evidently John was kind of trailing along behind. We now pick up the narrative, John chapter 21 and verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? John and Peter were close. They had a history. Prior to Jesus calling them to be his disciples, uh, they had been fishing partners, as stated in Luke chapter 5, verse 10. Both Peter and John were part of the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. It was Peter and John who ran together to the tomb on resurrection morning. They were close. They were close. John, characteristically humble, never likes to speak in first person of himself. Rather, he typically refers to himself in third person or indirectly, as we find here. John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You say, well, that's not very humble. Well, it is if it's true, and it was true. Uh, There was a special bond between Jesus and John, and everybody knew it, and John certainly knew it. The early Christians universally recognized this as being the Apostle John, and this is consistent with the internal evidence that we find in the book as well. It was John who leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Inquiring minds want to know. Namely, Peter. (laughs) And and note, he did this at the direction of Peter. Uh, Let's review this in John chapter 13, 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We believe this is John, the apostle. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him. John, John, John to ask who it was of whom he spoke. it's going to be betrayed. He's making that clear to them. And Peter said, who in the world is this? John, you're right there with Jesus. Ask him. Leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Peter was a leader, but he consistently kind of wanted to know what was going on with the other guys. You know, that's kind of human, right? Yeah, pretty human. We like to know what's going on with people, right? We kind of like, what, 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 what's going on here? It's so interesting, especially if it's about somebody else. <laughs> well, Peter, just having been told how he would die, that's the context, in his old age, then proceeded to follow Christ and turning around, he also saw John following, you know, his buddy from way back. And characteristic of the impulsive guy that he was, the text says, verse 21, Peter seeing him, he sees John. Oh man, he just told me how I'm going to die. He sees John and, and he said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? What about him? In effect, Peter was saying, okay, Lord, if that's how I have to die, what about John? What's his fate going to be? And in wondering about this, you wonder if Peter was questioning whether he was going to get a worse deal than John, especially in light of the Lord's response. After all, you understand John was the favorite of Jesus in a sense. I mean, he is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Was he going to get favored treatment? What about him? What about him? You know, we often say life isn't fair in the sense that not everyone has the same experience, and that is certainly true. Some have this happen, some have that happen. But what we have to come back to is that God is sovereign and God is God. You really don't want to argue with God is God. And he, being God, can do whatever he wants to with this lump of clay. And he has his sovereign purposes that are often past finding out. We can't figure God out. That makes him God. God is God, and it is his prerogative to do as he pleases according to his own will. In the end, God's ways are always right in keeping with his character and his purpose. And we have the promise that all things work together for good for those who love God. I I think we can probably just leave it there. Instead of comparing, well, this is it. Well, I'm, I'm, getting a, I'm getting a raw deal here. That's what Jesus said, verse twenty-three. Jesus said to him, "If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me." Jesus really put Peter in his place once again. If his will was for John to not die and remain alive till he comes, what is that to Peter? In other words, Peter, it's none of your business. God can sovereignly choose how he works in every individual life. And we have no right to challenge or to question it. And yet in our humanness, we kind of want to. "What, what, what What about this? That's none of your business. Peter, in effect, is told to mind his own business and not be distracted by comparison with others. It's so human to want to compare our lot with that of other people and then to complain about what we think uh, isn't really a fair shake. It's good to realize that the will of God uh, for every individual is custom made. No two people have the same exact experience. God has a personalized plan for you and for me. And it's wrong to compare. He wants to use each one of us in a very special way, completely unique to us and unique to his plan for us. Now, some things belong to the realm of the secret things, which belong to the Lord our God, and we have to leave it with him humanness is, we kind of want to know why, but often we don't know the why. God's in charge of how he wants to use us. He's in charge of how he wants us to serve. And he's in charge of the kind of death he wants to use with us to bring glory to God. This is God's territory. You know, we finished up James not long ago, James 4.15. I've kind of put this verse over 2020, right? This is is our verse for 2020. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Our lives are ordered according to the sovereign will of God. And often we can't figure out why he works in this way or that way. But rest assured, he has his reasons. His will is behind whether we live or die. And whether we do this or that. Job could not figure out why these terrible things were happening to him. After all, he had been faithful in serving God. God himself said, Quote, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. When God gives that kind of testimony, you can bet that this guy is a good guy. Job 1 8. Yet what God allowed Job to go through was horrendous. Why? That is what Job wanted to know as he went along in the story, and yet, you know, he never really got answers. He received a greater vision of God, and that was sufficient. After that, he had no more questions. He had just admitted his ignorance and repented in dust and ashes. Sometimes people say foolish things like, "If you just had enough faith, bad things would not happen to you." I wonder if these people actually read the Bible. What happened to Jesus? What happened to the disciples? What happened to the Apostle Paul? God had a specific course for each of them in accordance with his own sovereign will and purposes. Hebrews 11 is known as the the Hall of Faith chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It gives example after example of the kind of faith that pleases God. But note this. Hebrews eleven, thirty three through thirty seven reads Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. Wow, this faith life is powerful stuff. Great things happen to those. Major transition. Others, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. You say, Lord, I really want to be in those first three verses. You know, that's the kind of faith I I kind of want. That's a faith experience I want to have. Let me ask you, let me ask you. Why did those who experienced great feats of faith in verses 33 through 35A, have a completely different experience than those people who were so abused in 35B through 37? That's, you're you're ahead of me. Uh, Was it because the abused had a deficient faith or because they did something wrong? Well, let's read on. Eleven thirty-eight 38 and 39 says, Of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, all these, yes, those in 33 through 35a, but also those through 35b through 37 and through 38, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. These were all people of faith. Why did these people have different experiences? Well, because God sovereignly determines these things. You can't put a formula to it. We like to in our humanness. The prosperity gospel guys, oh, they like to do that. Just follow my little formula. Send in some gift money, you know, just seed money that will help you on to your miracle. False teachers. Good thing we're not in the Old Testament. We have to stone these guys. They keep getting away with it. God sovereignly determines these things. This is left with God. He sovereignly chooses how he wants to use each life and death for his glory. And since he is God, this is his prerogative. Note it very clearly that Jesus assumes this God prerogative, saying, if I will that he remain, Showing that he clearly is God who's in charge of each person's destiny. I mean, imagine if I was to say to you, I will determine how long you're going to remain. Well, you'd probably call the authorities like I'm a hitman or something, right? (laughs) I mean, uh, who sovereignly chooses how long people are going to stay here? How much time they have on the earth? God does that. Jesus says, if I will, What's he saying? He's saying he's God in charge of our destiny, in charge of how much time we have here. This is another clear statement from the Gospel of John that Jesus is God. Previously, Peter's comparison with others was clearly wrong. Remember what he said? Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Well, Peter has just been humbled greatly on that score. But now he's learning that it's even inappropriate to compare yourself with others concerning how God might sovereignly want to use you in reference to death. This is not to be our concern. This is the Lord's business. And no, Peter was the exception in that he was told how he would die. But the other disciples were not told. Tradition says all the disciples died as martyrs, with the exception of John. John was the last living apostle who in his old age received the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, thus completing the canon of Scripture, and then he died. Uh, GotQuestions.org summarizes. Tradition says John was arrested in Ephesus, faced martyrdom, when his enemies threw him in a huge basin of boiling oil. However, according to tradition, John was miraculously delivered from death. The authorities then sentenced John to slave labor in the mines of Patmos. And on the island island in the southern part of the Aegean Sea, John had a vision of Jesus Christ and wrote the prophetic book of Revelation. The apostle John was later freed, possibly due to old age, returned to Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. He died as an old man sometime after A.D. 98. The only, apo- the only apostle to die peacefully. Well, that's interesting. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, God's plans for Christians vary. And his reasons are not often made known. How true that is. Warren Wearsby says, I recall a critical time in my own ministry when I was disturbed because of other ministries that were apparently getting God's blessing in abundance. While I seem to be reaping a meager harvest. I must confess that I envied them, and I wish that God had given their gifts to me. But the Lord tenderly rebuked me with, What is that to you? Follow me. It was just the message I needed, and I've tried to heed it ever since. That is a great lesson for all of us. People do like to compare. Pastors like to compare numbers. How are things going? Uh, we like to compare who is doing what, and, and corresponding results. But it's not wise to compare, because God works differently through different people. In Second Corinthians, we know false teachers like to compare. Second Corinthians 10-12, uh, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves, And comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. It's not wise to compare. God has a unique gifting and a unique plan for each one of his his children. And how he works this out in our lives is his business. Our business is to focus on our own personal responsibility and follow him. Instead of comparing, Jesus told Peter, you follow me. This is the essential issue in the Christian life. Following Christ and doing what he wants us to do. To focus on others is really to lose proper focus. Our focus is to be on Christ and not on others in that sense. Our focus is to be on following Christ, not the course that he has for others and how that matches up with our course. Well, this is where personal responsibility comes in. Our first concern is to be our own walk. Making sure that I'm following Christ. That's really the the main thing you have to be concerned about. Just yourself, in that sense. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Following on the heels of the faith chapter says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. That's it. Stay focused on Christ. Keep following Him. Don't get distracted by looking at others. Comparing is a stumbling block. It causes one to lose focus. And this is what Jesus was really warning Peter about. After restoring Peter, Jesus said to him, Follow me, as seen in verse 19. Now in correcting Peter, he again says, You follow me. This is the great issue in life, following Christ. The whole of what we are to be doing is really summed up in follow Christ. This is indicative of being a true believer true believer is a true follower. Following is the fruit of true faith. We see in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. A true sheep follow the shepherd. 12.26, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now, we're not saved by following. But if we are saved, we will follow. And yet in all of our following, we falter at times. James says we all stumble in many ways. Indeed we do. The key is to stay focused on following all the time as a way of life. That is the challenge and that is the exhortation that Christ put to Peter. Focusing on others will get you off track. Focusing on your personal responsibility of following Christ is what keeps you on track. It's interesting that Jesus says this in the book of Revelation to the church at Philadelphia. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. How is somebody going to take your crown? Well, people can cause you to lose your crown if you lose focus. But it's our own personal responsibility to hold fast, to keep on following, to stay focused on Christ. Well, the first thing that, Peter, uh, that Jesus said to Peter in calling him was, Follow me. I've seen in Matthew 4.19. And one of the last things that Jesus said to Peter was, Follow me. And he stated here twice in this context, making for a double emphasis. Following is a demonstration of our love for the Lord, which Jesus has just questioned Peter about. Well, let me make a little footnote here in terms of personal application. Uh, you know, lots of times in my worship of the Lord, I say, Lord, I love you. And almost invariably, it comes back to me, if you love me, keep my commandments. What What do you mean when you say, I love you to the Lord? Well, many professing Christians express their love for the Lord emotionally. And that is good. I don't want to put that down. I think that's a good thing. God made us emotions and all. The great command is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And there's a lot of all in there. With all your soul certainly relates to the emotions. But what about following? In the exchange that Jesus had with Peter, as seen in our study last week in 21, 15 through 17, Jesus repeatedly, challenged, uh, Jesus repeatedly challenged Peter regarding agape love, which is the concept really of a sacrificial love. Peter responded that he did love the Lord with the word phalao, that more typically emphasizes affection with an emotional component. The conversation went to the issue of agape love, which is willing to lay down one's life for another, which is where Peter ended up. Agape love is not concerned about comparing with others. It only wants to be faithful to the Lord no matter the cost. And this is where Jesus, I think, was moving Peter. It involved a process. But Peter, by the grace of God, got there. We not only show our love for the Lord in singing and praying but also in our actions and in obeying his command to follow whatever the cost. That's the really essence of that word agape love is used in the Gospel of John. Our love for the Lord is to involve our emotions, but also our mind and our will. Our entire person is to be given over to him. On Judgment Day, I don't think it will matter what happened to others in the sense of comparing I don't think we're going to have an attitude that says, well, I didn't have to go through that or, or I did have to go through this and you didn't have to go through that. I don't think that's going to be the issue on judgment day at all. What will matter is that we ran our course that God gave to us faithfully. That's all that will matter on that day. Follow Christ. Verse 23, this, uh, then this saying went out among the brethren that, his, that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? John, here at the very end of the book, inserts this correction. Rumors tend to get things wrong. You know, we have conspiracy theories, and most of them are true. You realize that, right? Not so much. Uh, rumors tend to get things wrong. And here's an example of it. Realize that John is writing in about AD 90 as, as an old man at this point. And the event being described happened over 50 years earlier. And evidently this rumor had persisted and continued to be circulated for over 50 years in the Christian community that the Lord said that John would not die. Well, I mean, you got a pretty definite date, right? We know the Lord's coming. Uh, John is now uh, 50. He's now 60, 70. We're getting close. Normally 70, 80 if you're strong. Okay, he's a strong guy. 80. <laughs> you can see how this worked. Evidently, many were expecting the Lord would come while John was still living. I mean, that was the word that was being circulated. The rumor. So they must have thought that the coming of the Lord must be getting very close because John is getting very old. We believe he's well into his 90s now. They must have thought, normally we would expect John to die soon. And since the Lord promised that he would return before John dies, that time must be getting very close. But here John corrects this error. The rumor got it all wrong. Jesus had not said John would die, uh, would not die, but rather he said, if I will that he remain till I come. What is that to you? You see, they overlooked that little word, if. And that makes all the difference. I love this quote by Mark Twain. The difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know that's true? Uh, words, words matter. And in God's word, every word matters. It's the difference between right doctrine and almost right doctrine, which is to say wrong doctrine. It's what rightly dividing the word of truth is all about. When it comes to properly understanding the word of the Lord, every little thing must be understood right in proper context. We can't be sloppy or careless about this, or we'll get it wrong. And, and I, I, you know, I have great fear and trembling when it comes to this because this is this is my great accounting. I'm a key teacher. Uh, uh, this is this is awesomely serious. This is my great accountability, as well as all of us as elders, especially. I'm reading a book, and overall, it's a good book. But the author makes this statement, and I'm, I'm uh, illustrating here. Uh, this is a statement from the book. This then is how we are saved. We must repent of our sins, put our trust in Christ as our Savior, and publicly identify ourselves with Him in baptism. Amen, brother. Spoken like an elder. (laughs) Amen. Uh, There's a problem here, isn't there? It's very sloppy at best. And because of this, I will never use this book. I've gotten it because I thought it might be a resource book. Uh, It covers a lot of basic things. I thought I might hand it out to uh, uh, seniors when they're graduating from high school, that kind of thing. I'll never use this book. What's the problem? Well, his statement at this point implies that water baptism is involved in saving a person instead of just being a testimony of our identification with Christ. That misses the entire point of the Gospel of John. John wrote so we might believe. And believing we may have life in his name. If something more is involved in saving you than believing, the Apostle John missed it. This is his entire purpose for writing the Gospel of John. And John left baptism out of his gospel. New Testament baptism is not found in John. Yeah, John the Baptist. That was prior. He wrote the whole book, the whole gospel of John for the singular purpose of bringing us to believe. This is what he says. I think I've been through this so often we don't even pay any attention to it anymore. But why did he write? That you may believe... That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in His name. Do you see anything other than believe in this purpose statement? I'm open. It's stated twice. The only condition for having life in His name is believing. That's it. We're saved by faith alone. Indeed, it must be the right kind of faith, a life-changing kind of faith. But we're saved by faith alone. As the Reformers were known to say, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not remain alone. Now, I agree that baptism is the expected fruit. The initial fruit. But we're not saved by baptism. Remember what he said? This is how we're saved. Repent of our sins, trust in Christ our Savior, publicly identify ourselves with Him in baptism. That's not not right. You say, well, it's a a little thing. It's a deadly thing. That's the point. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God and salvation for everyone who is baptized. No! Who believes... 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize, that's one thing, but to preach the gospel. He just said in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation everyone who believes. Did not send me to baptize, but to preach a gospel. Paul makes a clear distinction between the gospel and baptism. We believe the gospel and we are saved, and once we are saved, we get baptized, The Bible teaches believers' baptism. We become a believer first, and at that moment, we are saved. And then following this, we get baptized as a testimony. It's not the water that washes our sins away, but only the blood of Jesus. Baptism is not the Savior. Only Jesus is the Savior, and only on the basis of faith alone. Words matter. One little thing can change the entire meaning. I mean, if you believe the water is involved in saving people, I mean, you're wanting to get them under the water as soon as possible to make sure they're cleansed. We note from this statement here in John 21 that the coming of Christ was very much on the minds of the early church. We see that reflected in the rest of the New Testament as well. Uh, they were looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's imminent uh, as reflected throughout the New Testament. The words of Christ, till I come, indicate that his imminent return was to be expected. And that he, if he wanted John to remain until that time, he would. The expectation that Christ could come at any time has been the hope of the church down throughout the church age. The greeting of the early church was Maranatha, which means our Lord comes. Uh, How about if we start greeting one another that way? Our Lord comes. We're expecting him. Hadn't come this week, but our Lord comes. Maybe this week. Could happen at any time. Prophetic overview here got the Old Testament. And then after the cross, uh, we have the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost. God's doing a new thing. He's temporarily set Israel aside, and now he's doing a new thing, consisting of both Jew and Gentile who come to believe in Christ. All believers. A new family called the church. It's a parenthesis age. God's building a forever family called the church. And when the church is completed, it's going to be raptured out. Perhaps today, Maranatha, our Lord's coming. And then, of course, uh, we have the uh, God will resume his program with Israel, the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation period, followed by the second coming, followed by the kingdom, followed by the eternal state. Even though the New Testament presents the coming of Christ for the church is imminent, which I believe it is. Today it's imminent meaning it could happen at any time. Even so, there are some qualifiers that apply to the early church during the apostolic era. What do I mean by this? Well, Jesus told Peter that he would die in his old age. So he had to die. And he would not be raptured. Right? Yep, that's right. Peter died in about 67 AD, which was quite early in the church age about 25 years before John wrote the Gospel of John. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to empower the church to be his witnesses to the end of the earth, Acts 1.8. So before the coming of Christ, there needed to be a widespread preaching of the gospel, which got off to a running start on the day of Pentecost, and then proceeded to be flung throughout the known world as seen in the book of Acts. In context, Peter has now died. And the gospel had indeed gone out far and wide. Now based on the rumor, many were thinking that the Lord would come while John was still living. Maybe. Maybe not. The Lord had left it open-ended with if. If. The Lord had not specifically said when. All he said was, if I will that he remain till I can. What is that to you? It would be the Lord's prerogative, whether John remained alive until his coming or not. Imagine if John was still living. He'd be one old dude. And Jesus still hasn't come. We'd say, well, as long as John remains, uh, you know, he hasn't come. He's still living. He's now uh, 1,800, 2,000 years old. No. Obviously, that was not the will of the Lord. Because John died as an old man in about A.D. 98. But can you imagine Christians thinking all these years, 50 years now that's been going on, all these years that John would not die until Jesus comes. Now all of a sudden, he dies. What would that do to your faith? Therefore, it was necessary that John set the record straight. Jesus did not give a false prediction. The rumor had simply gotten it all wrong. And Merrill Tenney says, This conscious attempt to discriminate between truth and exaggerated rumor confirms the authenticity of this gospel. The last two chapters in John thematically cover the span between the resurrection of Christ and his coming again. In between these two events is the age called the church age. This is where we live, This is where the New Testament epistles come in and addresses church truth. It's during this time that Christ is building a forever family called the church. This is the big idea of what God is doing in the world. He's building a forever church family. Verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and who wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John, as a long-standing credible witness testified of these things and wrote them down. And then he says, we know that his testimony is true. This is a solemn affirmation that this is true, evidently referring to the entire contents of the book. We see John making a similar statement in John 19.35. There he said, And he was seen as testified, and this testimony is true. And he knows that he uh, is telling the truth, so that you may believe. (laughs) He's really making an emphasis, isn't he? And now he says pretty much the same thing at the end of the book. And he says this in 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, that life was manifested, we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father, which was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. It's like John jumping up and down can't emphasize enough the truth that he has seen and heard and experienced firsthand. He is telling us with all that he's got, with uttermost sincerity, that this is true, and he knows it. The disciples were willing to die for their testimony. No one ever recanted or changed their mind, not one of the apostles. No one ever broke rank. They all dogmatically, with one accord, affirmed the truth of Christ as they had experienced it firsthand. And John, as the last living apostle, drives the point home emphatically. Even though we believe John wrote this, note he says here, we know. Certainly speaking of him and the other apostles with him, uh, John knew it was true as an eyewitness. But we perhaps could also include the uh, believing community that he represented. They, They affirmed it with him. John's testimony as an old man was impeccable. His track record was above reproach. It was in perfect accord with the apostolic testimony of all the other apostles. Even though John said, we, in verse 24, note he went on to say, I suppose, in verse 25, indicating that he probably used we in an editorial sense in verse 24, including himself along with fellow believers. Well, to finish out, verse 25. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Now, some take this literally, and some take it as an example of hyperbole, that is to say, obvious exaggeration to make a point, but either way, clearly John was very selective in what he chose to include in this gospel. Jesus did so much more than this sampling, this mere sampling presented. John Phillips says, when we get to heaven and receive our resurrection bodies, when we see him as he is, sit at his feet and listen to his voice, when face to face we shall know even as we are known, then we shall say to him, Lord, the half was never told to us. Perhaps then he will tell us the rest of the story. And John MacArthur makes this uh, observation: This makes the point stronger regarding how great Israel's unbelief and subsequent culpability truly was. Since she denied her Messiah in the face of such a massive display of divine power, in light of the vast evidence of his deity, Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus renders her subject to the severest of judgment. But what about us? What about us? What John presented is sufficient to bring us to faith. It's not exhaustive by any means, but it is enough. And it shines the light bright enough to make anyone familiar with its contents especially accountable. It's Christmas time. And for many, this is a season about temporal gifts. But for us as believers, it's really about the greatest gift ever given, which is the gift of God's Son. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave. God's a giver. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what the gospel of John is all about. The gospel of John highlights who Jesus is as God, as the God-man who became our savior, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And isn't it truly amazing? Truly amazing when you really stop and think about it that the Jews missed him for who he was in light of the vast amount of miracles that Jesus did right in front of them. Note the emphasis here. If they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. It's amazing. How did this happen? You know, it was prophesied. Isaiah 53.1 one. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Rhetorically, Israel failed to believe the prophets. To whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? The answer is the strong arm of the Lord in all of His glorious power was revealed to Israel in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ during His earthly ministry as testified to John, by John the Apostle in a selective sense. But they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him. How come? How come? Well, read on. Isaiah 53, 2. <clears throat> For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, attractiveness, And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You see, Jesus came in great humility. Resulting in him being unrecognized and unappreciated. He came off weak and tender in terms of his human origins. He came in a context of lacking. Not well to do, not well watered as it were. He himself was outwardly unimpressive. He did not look like what they they expected the Messiah to be. He seemed, are you ready for this? So ordinary. You know who God uses mainly today? Pretty much ordinary people like me and you. I know there's a few of you sophisticates out here, and that's okay. There's a few of you in there too, but anyway. He seemed so ordinary. He did not have a regal appearance. And so, they missed him. And I've told this story before, but it fits so well here, I'm going to use it again. It reminds me of the story of the ship in the lighthouse. Through the pitch black night, the captain sees a light dead ahead on a collision course with his ship. Change your course 10 degrees east. The light signals back. Change your course. Change yours 10 degrees west. Angry, the captain sends, I'm a Navy captain. Change your course, sir. I'm a seaman. Second class, comes the reply. Change your course, sir. Now the captain is furious. I'm a battleship. I'm not changing my course. There's one last reply. I am a lighthouse, your call. (laughs) You know what? Jesus came as a second-class seaman, as it were. But the gospel of John shows him to be the lighthouse. He came in humility, but in truth, he was the light. What's your response? Your call. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall will have the light of life. In John 12, we read Jesus saying, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. What about you? John 1, 11 and 12. He came to his own, his own people, the Jews. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, To those who believe in his name. Well have you received him. The light of the world. For who he is as Lord and Savior. Will you receive him? Your call. Your call. The Bible is very clear. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. What will you do with the light as presented in the Bible, in the gospel of John. Let's stand and have our closing song.